Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, before we pray and before we read the scripture, I just want to mention that we sort of have to do some house cleaning today and finish up on lesson 3. I'm sorry, what am I saying, lesson 3? 1 Peter 3, it's lesson 8 um, that we have to finish up on. And, and so if you don't have the paper from last week, that was handed out last week, lesson 8, out on the credenza at the far end this way. As you face it, the far right end, there are still copies of Lesson 8. I checked that just now. And then today's handout should be Lesson 9. So if we're all on the same page, that'll help. Okay, very good. So we'll queue up Lesson 8 here in just a moment. But uh, first, I want to have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into God's Word. Father, today we thank you for the Lord's Day. We always look forward to the Lord's Day because it holds the prospect of so much good for us, for so much blessing, and we need that so desperately. We come to this place today, Lord, we need the refreshment that fellowship with your people affords us and the encouragement thereof. We need uh, to meet with you most preeminently. We need to sense your presence. We need to offer surrendered and open hearts to the ministry of your spirit here today. And Lord, we just beg of you that we might receive as as well as to give. We pray that we will be encouraging to others, but we pray that uh, what we experience here today as the preaching and teaching and all the different things take place, the singing, all the constituent parts of our worship, uh, that, Lord, it may be edifying to us and encouraging to us. He'll bless this day now. Lord, as we think beyond our own walls and we think of uh, across South Carolina, across the United States, around the world as the Lord's Day is in progress, uh, we would just pray for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray, Father, souls may be saved. We thank you that as we near the end of this day, if Jesus tarries, we know that we'll be a day closer to the coming of our Lord Jesus. And help us to keep that in mind. It's a big encouragement to us when we look around and see uh, all the dark days and difficult experiences that our world has right now. And so we commit this to you as we come to First Peter chapter 3 and work into chapter 4. We just confess, Lord, that there's nothing resident within us that's going to enable us to do a, a good job here today, only the leading and power and freedom that the Spirit of God may give. And we need insight and we need open hearts, as we've mentioned. So would you just help me and would you help every listener today? Lord, I covet and pray that no one will go away without uh, some sense of meeting with you, some blessing, some need met, uh, some encouragement given. And we'll thank you now for all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Okay, time is always a precious commodity, but I think it's um, probably a mistake to cut reading God's Word because we're in trouble for time. So I want to go back to the beginning of lesson number eight, and you see there lesson eight, the Christian as a stranger. So it begins with chapter three, verse 13, and we'll read from there. I'm going to stop the reading at the end of chapter three so we can hopefully finish up that. Then we'll make the transition to chapter nine, God willing. So, verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Remember you saw the word blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Remember, you saw that. 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited, or was waiting, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of, the dirt from, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal of a good conscience, so you saw that again, good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. The Christian as a stranger. I mentioned that we find the word stranger back in chapter 2. We don't find it in this section, but I think it's a good word to characterize what's going on here because truly we are in this world but not of this world. And Peter is talking about many of the same things here and takes a lot of the same thought directions that he did back in the actual section that had the exhortation to us as strangers and pilgrims in it. So I like that for a designation as we look through this section. I pointed out about good conscience and blessing. So if you look at verse 16 again, you find good conscience. And if you look at verse 21 again, you find good conscience. But, and this is kind of how this lesson is put together, if you look at verse 9, so that takes us back to the previous section. Let's just look and see if you see a word there that I pointed out when we were reading in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. What word are we looking for in that verse? I said, remember, you saw it earlier. In verse 14, blessing. Blessing, right? So, kind of, my burden in this is just to point out to you that we have a passage here that gets pretty in-depth with a number of um, theological interesting problems and, and, and situations of interpretation. And it's really easy when you hit those things to get off the track so that you become so engrossed with figuring out those things and all the different interpretations and what people say and why they say it that you don't really keep in view what maybe the author is trying to do throughout the passage or what he's trying to do with those, with those illustrations. And what I'd like to point out to you is um, when you think about good conscience, and I mentioned last week he talks about having a good conscience towards man, which is what we find in the earlier part. And he talks about having a good conscience towards God, which is what we find in that latter reference at the end of the chapter in verse 21. And if we do the things that he prescribes there, we don't obey to earn God's blessing, but it is still a biblical truth that obedience brings blessing. And so he points out to us the blessing that comes to us when we live the way God wants us to live. And if we see that in the passage and see what Peter's trying to do, then you can sort of look at the way I've tried to put this together by saying, okay, we have specifics to guide and we have examples to cheer. And we kind of look at the specifics to guide last week, but what I want to do is point to the examples to cheer today because 
I really like this about Peter. I mean, it's always good, I think, for preachers to encourage their, their audiences because we can always use encouragement. I don't know that you ever get too much of that, do you? I haven't had it too many days where I've had too much encouragement. I've had days when I've needed less, maybe. But that's always in style, and it doesn't really matter how much you got yesterday. Did you ever notice that's kind of a, a commodity with a day expiration date on it? I mean, you do remember certain things that cheered you the day before, but each day is a day unto itself. And if it's true that sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, it's also true that we need to look for God's encouragement and blessing in each day, too, to cope with some of the things that life throws at us. So when you get to the latter part of the chapter where the, the, difficulty, the difficulties begin to come as far as inter interpretative issues are concerned, what I'm really wanting to point out is, is that Peter is bringing to bear two examples. He's trying to bring to bear two examples of this whole idea that when we are strangers in this world and the going gets tough and we seek to have a good conscience towards God and a good conscience towards man, yielding ourselves to God and obeying as best we understand, God blesses us. Can you show me any examples of that? Yes, Christ and Noah. Christ and Noah. So that's what's at the end of the chapter. So let's move forward to where we were. Um, it's tempting to go back and remind you of these things that we talked about, but we just don't have time. So first of all, in verses 18 through 22, you have Christ as the overarching example. Now, how is that so? Well, it says Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So one of the things that we have to point out about the sufferings of Christ right away is, is that they are unique in their character and they are unique in their consequences. But it is also true, is it not, that the Bible talks about us participating in Christ's sufferings. So we don't do that to add to Christ's sufferings. In other words, there's, there's nothing, and Christ did not suffer for his own improvement, right? Christ suffered the just for the unjust. And as he goes on to point out, so the nature of his sufferings were, sufferings were to affect reconciliation, propitiation. Those ideas are involved in the phrase there that he might bring us to God. They were final in the sense they were victorious. He says he also once suffered for sins. This is not something like Old Testament sacrifices that had to be repeated. But instead... Um, it was a one-time thing because it accomplished everything that God needed. So Christ is an example of this whole idea of suffering, but he certainly did not suffer for any reasons of anything he did wrong. And this is where there is something of a parallel, because if we follow Christ, um, well, we know this world is no friend to grace. Isn't that true? And so we know, and Jesus warned us in John chapter 15, if they have listened to my word, they will keep your your word also, but if they have hated me, they will hate you. And so as we try to do this thing of living for God, having a good conscience towards man, sometimes they don't like that, Some, they revile and all of this type of things that we've talked about, and we are strangers in this world, but nevertheless, there is encouragement. So how do we find Christ as an encouragement? Well, I'd like to point out towards the end of the verse and then in some of the things that we have following, that there are several ways in which this is true. Christ was victorious in his suffering. And we find this at the end of the verse where it says, being put to death in the flesh. Now, usually that's final, right? <laughs> I mean, there are a few things more final than death in this life. 
But in the case of Christ, you notice, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So here's where it's pretty easy to get off into the weeds, because as I mentioned last week, there's a, a bunch of back and forth among interpreters over whether this should be interpreted as Christ's, Christ's spirit, just as you and I have a spirit. ESV takes it that way. You notice the small s. So when it says here, it's not, in other words, it's not capitalized. So as you look at it in the ESV, what it's trying to say is, is that Christ was made alive in the spirit. Now the King James capitalizes the S and takes it as a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think it might be NIV. There's two prominent translations that, that do that and two prominent ones we use that don't. I think it's NASV is little S or big S? Little, so, okay, so yeah. So it's ESV and NASV that have the small S and then KJV and NIV, two unlikely friends, but nevertheless they took... They took the same um, interpretation here. <sighs> what am I going to say about this? Um, I think I backed up, didn't I? Hit the button. And, well, I guess what I want to say about this is probably like a lot of people in this room, maybe not everybody, but I know some of you have been lifelong students of the scriptures. Uh, I've studied this, and particularly when I've had to go here and... Uh, school was interpretation, which kind of meant that New Testament interpretation. So that kind of meant that when you got to your orals, your teachers could ask you any verse in the New Testament about which there might be some complication or interpretative question, and you had to have an answer. You didn't have to, you didn't have to necessarily be satisfied with the answer. In other words, you might be at the place where you didn't have it all figured out for yourself, aren't we all? <laughs> but especially when you're a whole lot younger, that's true. And so you just needed to know a valid interpretation of the verse. So I've been studying this for years. And I tell you the truth, folks, I mean, I have gone back and forth on this. And somebody might sort of smile when I say this, but there's a, an interesting little thought. When you get to the end of that verse and you look here, it says, but made alive in the spirit. It may be a little less noticeable to us in English, although if you really look for it and you know grammar, you'll, you'll sense it. But in Greek, it's real obvious. This is passive voice. So what's that mean in grammar? Well, it sort of means that, okay, Jack hit the, vol hit the ball. What's that? That's active voice because you have a subject. He's the doer of the action. You have a direct object. It's the ball. Jack hit the ball. But if you say something like, Jack was hit by the ball, now you don't know who is the person that hit him with it. So the subject is left unexpressed, and Jack is the receiver of the action. So in this particular case, what this passive voice tells us here is that some, for, forgive me if I don't get this precisely so, but some external force is at work here. What is that external force? Well, you can relate it to Christ himself, or you can relate it to the Holy Spirit. So, I, in one sense, maybe one interpretation fits the context a little better, but according to Romans 8.11, which um, I will read for you, 
the Spirit of God is intimately acquainted and associated with the resurrection, which is what is being described here. All right, so let's read Romans 8.11. I don't think I have that verse for us here. It says this, um, If the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so the Spirit raised up Jesus from the dead, it says, the Spirit is, uh, lost my place in the verse, uh, will also, the Spirit will also give life also to your mortal bodies uh, through his Spirit who dwells in you. In any case, this ends in a victory. Death does not overcome Jesus Christ. Now, if you take the interpretation with the little s, you've kind of got more of the idea that Christ comes out of that grave, and as he, as he ra is raised from the dead, he is quickened with a, a, I hate to say new because it makes it sound like he never had it before, but I'll say it in the sense of if you think of Christ on the earth, and you think of the restrictions he placed upon himself. Does this make sense, what I'm talking about so far? Well, there were certain limitations, but you know something on the resurrection morning, no further limitations. Christ, when they came that morning to the tomb and rolled the stone away, they didn't do that to let him out. You, you know that, right? I mean, he was already gone. Well, when's the last time you tried to walk through the stone? Doesn't work well. In fact, you can do it with something less hard than a stone. Just get up whenever you want to. I won't mind because I want to watch. And try to leave without opening the door. Doesn't work real well. You're going to fram into it with your nose and bust your glasses up against your face and be an unhappy camper. But Christ could do that. And actually, let's get to the illustration that's used in the text. He could do more. This, this new or restored, let's put it this way, that... that what is coming to Christ is everything he was in spirit before, so that now he has this new freedom. How did he exercise that freedom? Well, we're given one example of that. It says here, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, which gets us in the next minefield. What's this talking about? Well, however or whatever it is, it ends in victory too, because you see in verse 22, has go, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So Christ suffered, but not for his own misdoing. But afterwards was exaltation. So several things actually illustrate the victory that came to Christ by following in the path that God set out for him, which was one of undeserved suffering. Blessing always follows when we adhere to God's will in our lives. And so he uses this as an example because whether you take it as Christ's newly quickened spirit or you take it as the Holy Spirit who raised him, well, it also says he goes and proclaims to the spirits which are in prison. Well, let's come back to that, okay? I promise to before we leave this. The point now, though, is to see that afterwards there was exaltation, as it says in verse 22. There's the blessing, just as it notes in verse 14. And let's read verses 12 through 14 of chapter 14, where, 4, where you're going to see the word blessing again, because it's the same thought. Verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be as surprised as at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So here's the application to believers, and we're going to get to that soon. But as we share Christ's sufferings, it says here, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are, what's that word? Blessed. Blessed. You're back to that thought again, see, of blessing. So when, when we follow in Christ's path, and, and we're told that we're, he is our example, that we should follow in his steps. That's our key verse for this section in the book. When we follow in his steps, and that brings to us suffering, yeah, I mean, it's no fun. But as we do God's will and appropriate his grace, we can expect his blessing. And Jesus is meant as an example of this. Sufferings did not vanquish Christ. Sufferings did not overcome Christ. In fact, his sufferings worked out the exact purposes of God in them, which go way beyond any purpose that he may have in our lives through sufferings. Now, there's another example that's given, Noah. And... uh, you know, I think Peter is a good example, once again, of a preacher because you say one thing, it makes you think of something else, and you take off on that for a while. You hope to remember to come back where you were. But so he says, because they formerly did not obey. He uses this as, as the example of Christ proclaiming victory. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, our, we don't have to do this this morning. I'm just telling you some of the conflict that surrounds this passage. We have to sort of figure out what he's talking about here, and there are basically three interpretations of this. One's completely unorthodox, which means that says that Christ went to, uh, I guess you would say, Hades, because at that point, however you view this, whether you, you view it as having two compartments or not, in other words, the realm of the dead. The Old Testament, Sheol, or what the New Testament would talk about as Hades, and proclaimed his victory, and some people think, to these disobedient spirits, and take this as human spirits, in which case what you're talking about is a second chance. In which case, we just throw that out right now, because that's completely unorthodox and out of keeping with every other place that we find these types of matters taught in the scripture. Some people think that, though. I'm more inclined personally to believe that it has reference to um, what we see next in this. We see Noah took, took his stand. So here's the example of Noah being a stranger. Do, by the way, do you happen to know how long Where do you get that number? Who said that? <laughs> by commentary. <laughs> That's as good answer as any. Commentary said it. Well, we do know that when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, and it mentions 120 years. Do you happen to know how old Noah was when his three sons were born? Yeah, 500. I don't know how, maybe that was when the first one was born. I don't know if they all three came at once. But roughly he was 500 when he started into the family business, which is a little late. you know, I guess it works out as God intends for it to work out. So, do you happen to know in what year of his life the rain started? At 100. In his 600th year. So, if he took into it his children, during that, you got 120 years in which this long-suffering of God was going on, but a 100-year space during which the ark probably was built, 
Did it take him 79 years? I don't know. But it was a long time, and I want you to think something about it. What do you think the people of Noah's generation thought each day when Noah got up and went to work? I'm just trying to be practical. What do you think they thought? Oh, you're going out there to work on that. The same thing they think about Ken Ham when he was building the ark. What did they think about him? Nuts. Absolutely nuts. They'll say the same thing if he builds the Tower of Babel, which someone told me is the next project. I got to see that. I wonder how tall that'll be. But I can imagine that every time, if you just think of our parlance, so I don't know exactly how this construction worked. I just know that Noah was more advanced than maybe what we think. But if you think of a hammer and nails, maybe it was wood pegs. But you go out there and bang, bang. Bang, putting those boards together and putting that pitch in there so that it didn't leak. Every time you did that, what do you think that people were thinking? This verse tells us, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. By the way, if we want to talk about the spirits in prison, this is the, this is the only place Peter gives any other comment on it, and so does Jude. So this is probably the better way to see that. The spirits in prison refer not to the people out there ridiculing Noah, except as maybe, well, we, that's a, <laughs> yeah, pr probably let's just look at it as the fallen angels at this point, but how they got involved in the picture we'll look at in a moment, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, and what did Noah do every time he banged one of those nails in? He was a preacher of righteousness. He didn't really fit in too well because he said, you know something, it's going to start raining. Now you have to figure out what you believe about when rain first came on the earth. So I, I can't settle that one for you. But if you happen to believe that it had never rained on the earth until Noah's day, then this gets really interesting, doesn't it? What are you doing today, Noah? Oh, I'm going to keep working on my ark. Why? It's going to rain. What's rain? And as Noah took his stand for God, as Noah was a stranger in this world, I'm sure Noah got plenty of kickback. And so this is what it's saying. God preserved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So when we go back and look at this in the context and try not to get off into too many of the weeds, it's interesting, by the way, it's worth your time, but it's just we don't have time. Blessing also came to Noah. Because he saved both himself and his family from the destruction of the flood. And if you like the idea of Christ's proclamation of victory to the spirits in prison, if you like that way of seeing this, these verses and interpret it that way, then in some sense you have a vindication of Noah because Christ is, is basically going to tell these people who, are, who were the arch representatives of evil in that day that... His, he was victorious on the cross. Sin didn't overcome him. It wasn't good news for them. Think about it that way. It was not good news for them. Because if there was any holdout hope that somehow evil might win in the end, not now. What happened on the cross? He made us a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So if this is what he's doing, going to announce to these spirits in prison that, you know what, your doom is sealed. 
The cross just demonstrated that and the resurrection. And there is a definite secondary sense in which that is a vindication of Noah. Well, if I lost you through all of this, don't feel bad. I'll feel bad, but don't you feel bad. So how does Genesis 6 come into it? I'll let you decide, but we will read it. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. You have to decide what you believe the sons of God are and what the sons of man are. That's, that's the only way you can work through this, and people are going to disagree with you no matter what you come up with. And they took them wives, uh, took the, them as wives, any as they chose. Then the Lord said, my, this is interesting, at that point that God makes this st- statement. I, I about had it with this. My spirit will not always strive with man. The Nephilim, or giants, as the King James translates it, were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So this is all going to hinge on what you believe the sons of man and the sons of God are. They bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. It's to those people, but are they people or is there more here? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, I'm I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'll tell you what I believe, and you can disagree. Just don't throw anything at me right now. But I think that it has to do with these fallen beings coming down and cohabiting. I I hear it right away. Somebody's going to say, well, the angels aren't married or given in marriage. Well, that's in heaven. They don't do that in heaven. But if an angel takes, inhabits a human being, is this a possibility? I think it's what it's talking about, and I think you have, it gives rise to this incredible evil. It's what, it's what Jude says in Jude. I didn't give you Jude, did I? But it's what Jude says about they left their first estate. And you have this terrible situation in which God is dealing and wipes out the earth, and these, these wicked angels are remanded forever. The reason we know that those people are in a separate class by their, I say people, but demons, why they're in a separate class by themselves, you'll know it by the answer to this question. Is every demon there? Is every demon cast down in chains of darkness, reserved to the darkness of the last? No, there's a few floating around, right? So you obviously have a sense here in which the Lord visited a particular judgment on a particular situation and a particular group and class of angels I'll let you sort that out. I just know that I think what's going on. Now, somebody's going to say, what in the world is going on with baptism? Well, water makes Peter think of baptism. And the water, of, the water symbolizes judgment. And the judgment pelted down on the ark. But Noah was in the ark, right? And if you, so Noah was protected from it. But those same waters of judgment, when they receded, brought Noah, who was in the ark, over to the other side into a, what kind of world? New world. Peter says, that's like baptism, because you know what? You identify with his Christ, with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in a certain sense, those waters represent the judgments that fell on Christ on the cross. But as you and I identify with Christ on the cross, it represents that judgment falling on him in my behalf. 
And as we come up from those waters, those same waters which depicted judgment in the one sense issue us by symbol. Baptism is symbolic. Issue us by symbol into a new life in which what we are saying to people is, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So that's what's, I think, going on there. All right, so let's move, if we can get to lesson nine. Sorry about the shotgun pace, but we're way over time even with this. So this is going to be just a cursory look at this. I have to finish this today. So you notice that Peter moves seamlessly now. His, the last key thought is the suffering of Christ, verse 18 of chapter 3. Christ also suffered. Since, therefore, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. We're back to that again. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All right, what's going on in this lesson? We'll call this the Christian as a struggler, because you know what? This life not only confronts us with things that accrue to us as being strangers, the reactions of people around us to our Christian testimony, but we ourselves struggle. And we especially, I think, can struggle with the idea of suffering. Most of the time we have a, a pretty negative outlook towards suffering. We don't see much by way of positive in it. So in this section, what I'd like to do with whatever time I have is to try to point you to the fact that, you know what, um, there are positives in this. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm overplaying my own spirituality. I always tell people I'm a big chicken. I'm not standing in line for suffering. But it is helpful if the Lord sees fit to allow it to come, to have some scriptural ammunition to keep in mind. And there are two benefits that come to believers from Christ's sufferings even if in this life it presents us with an incredible struggle. All right, so let's take a look. In this life, well, we talked already about conversion and baptism because what that, going back to that verse in chapter 3, verse 21, it, Peter says suffering equips us, it prepares us with a new way of thinking. So when we think about what's happened to us in conversion and what baptism represents about that, we realize we're supposed to be living a new life. And we're living it, of course, by the power of Christ. So we have some verses here. Let's read the ones from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, that's the old life, right? Christians are not supposed to live that way, right? All right? This is what Paul, by no means, how can he, we who died to sin live in it, do you know that all of us, so this is where baptism comes in is the portrayal of that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. So you must also, verse 11 says, as he begins to make this application, so you must also consider, reckon, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. That's the new way of thinking that Peter says suffering is supposed to remind us of the fact that we have a new life that we're living in Christ and we don't respond to these things in the way that we might have responded to them at one time. But, so that's, that's the, the idea of the theology sort of that's involved back to the reference to, to baptism and bringing it back into the context like that. But beyond that, I want you to think about a practical point with me because what happens if you're a Christian but you haven't really kept this in the forefront of your thinking. You haven't really armed yourself. You haven't really prepared yourself to think in this way, and you've kind of slipped a little bit. You've become careless about your Christian experience. You sort of slipped back into the old way, bad habits, and the, and the old ways of living. Boy, there's nothing like a little suffering to really get your attention and remind us. Sometimes God does intervene and work in our ways and use suffering in that sense. Peter says this, how about this, because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, he doesn't mean that we're perfect, but I think he is making a very practical point. Suffering can be a reality check. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased. You can take this, for those of you who know the original language, you can take this as a middle which has the idea of stopped himself from sin, which would be more back to our first point, that we realize now that we have a new life in Christ. We're not living as we lived before. But if we get careless about that and we need, a, we need God to kind of remind us about that, well, if we took this as a passive, has been stopped from sin. In other words, wow, I, I, this event comes into my life and it just jolts me. Okay, I want to give you an illustration, because you can listen to that all day long, and sometimes you follow it, and sometimes you don't. But if you look in the woods right now, here's what you'll see. Most of the trees don't have any leaves, correct? Because we're still coming just into spring, but we're still basically in the tailwinds of winter here. So what happens? The fall comes, you get that first frost, the, water be the weather begins to cool off, but that first frost in particular, those leaves are killed, it generates those colors that we see in them. And over a process of time, as it continues to get cold, they are dead and the storms come, the winds come, and everything else. And what happens to them? They fall. The old life is gone. They fall. And we're in the dead of winter. But if you look in the woods right now, you're not going to find the leaves off every particular variety. You know that? You look out in your woods. If you've got any woods around to look at, you'll find some. Some of the leaves are gone on them, but a lot of them are still hanging on. They're just as dead as a doornail, but they're still hanging on. What does it take to get rid of them? Spring, new life, new growth. And folks, there's a certain sense in which we lose a lot of the dead leaves in the fall, but some still hang on sometimes, and to some of us more than others. And it takes another jolt sometimes to get our attention. And this is sort of, in a way, I think, what the couple of points that you have here in a practical sense. God wants us to break with the past. 
we've already wasted enough time. That's what Peter says. I have to kind of drill this down, but so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, the way we used to live, but for the will of God. Peter says, you've done enough of that, and goes through a whole description. I mean, if you want a description in the Bible of the ultimate party animal, verse 3 is it. I don't even want to talk about those words, because what they conjure up is just ugly, it's nasty. I mean, the Bible has to deal with these subjects, but it's just, you study these words out, and, and these, this, these types of things that people engage in, pretty good description of what we have going on right now in our society. And Peter says in verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised. I mean, they don't understand. There might be some kickback to this because they don't, they don't quite have figured out why it is you used to do that stuff with them, you don't do it anymore. So this is where some suffering could come in because you get some kickback from this sometimes. They don't understand. And it's very interesting when the ESV translates this in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised. That's okay. It's a, it's a fine translation. I, I kind of like by the way King James, though, really drills down on what the word is talking about because the root in this word is a stranger. They think it's strange. Or they look at you as they would a stranger. What's your problem? And so there can be a little kickback that comes from this. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, there's the kickback. We've, we've encountered this thought several times. But Peter says they're going to give an account. They will one day give account to Christ himself. This is interesting because when it says they will one day give account, it's the idea of render a word. And logos there has the sense of an account, for those of you that know that word. But it's interesting that it's still the regular word for word. And so you could get from this that in the process of having to give that account, they have to answer. You could translate this, they have to answer, which is what, when you get called on the carpet for doing something wrong, they expect you to give an answer, right? Why'd you do this? And that's the construction that's used here. Can you imagine people standing before God who have ridiculed his people, who have refused Christ, and have maligned his people having to answer directly to God for that? and it's Christ that you answer to, I charge you in the presence, Paul says uh, in verse 2 Timothy 4, 1, of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by, the, his, and by his appearing and his kingdom. You know that, and again, I, I shouldn't because there just isn't time, but you know that living in the dead, the quick and the dead, King James says quick, quick and the dead, that, that phrase is used enough in the Bible that it's, also, it's kind of become creedal. In its, you know, that's taken over into the creeds of the church, that, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. So in this life, we have this benefit of the, the sufferings of Christ and suffering, and that God sometimes uses it to do a work in our lives. All right, the second thing for which we don't really have time is the next landmine. So it's convenient, isn't it, how I tell you I don't have time for these landmines. But nevertheless, what does he say here? Uh, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Well, you have to figure out who that is because you don't, want to, you don't want to stray off into the idea that we're talking about a second chance again. 
And I haven't even talked about the fact that the difference in the words here, but probably the best way to take this is he's referring to Christians who have since gone to be with the Lord, and that what he's saying here is, thinking about the blessing and the life to come, he's thinking about, uh, so you have the unorthodox view, I mentioned that, and, but in the NIV also renders this, those who are now dead, so that, that's what I just told you. And the idea is to encourage us by showing the benefit of Christ's suffering for us. What is that? Well, if you think about the unsaved that we just read about, they spend their whole life in waste and ruin. And then they not only have ruined their lives here and wasted their lives here, they ultimately have to answer for God, as it says in verse 5. Not Christians. No, in fact, at the end of this verse, it says that they might be judged in the flesh the way people are and live in the spirit the way God does. So, Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So, what's the last... What's the last thing death can do to you if Jesus tarries? What's the last thing sin can do to you if Jesus tarries? Well, you're going to meet the undertaker. I mean, if that's the only way to get to Jesus, then okay. I'd rather go the other way. But it's the last thing death can do to you into this, in this life. And what does it actually do? Death which is a fearful thing to people who don't know Christ, actually is a vehicle that ushers us into the presence of God. Because Christ was victorious, chapter 3, verse 18, in his sufferings for us. So believers face the last consequence of sin in this life, which is death, but afterwards they enjoy all the fullness and freedom of spiritual and eternal life. That's what the outlook that we need to have. And so in summarizing this, you know, as I say here in this last, next to last slide, it's awfully easy to lose sight of this now. This life can be a struggle. Suffering's not easy, like chastening, it's no fun, he says in Hebrews 12, 11. But Christ sustains us with the hope that we talked about earlier in chapter one and guides us by his example, and we have to stop, sorry. Father, thank you for the time that we could spend. Lord, were there questions? Uh, have been things that have not been explained well or left unclear to people? Uh, would you help with that? Would you just help us to see the, the points that really affect our lives about the fact that you're in control of everything? You make all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to your purpose. You have victory in all things. And thank you that in knowing Christ, we are on the victor's side. Bless now as we move into our worship service. Bless Pastor Andrew, all those who are in music ministry, those who read the Bible to us, whatever is done, that it may honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.